Chapter 7, Part 2 of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter 7 The Ministrations of the Reverend Uttermus Dumfarthing. Part 2 edward said the rector's father on the occasion of their next quarterly discussion i cannot conceal from you that the position of things is very serious your statements show a falling off in every direction your interest is everywhere in arrears your current account overdrawn to the limit at this rate you know the end is inevitable your debenture and bondholders will decide to foreclose and if they do you know there is no power that can stop them even with your limited knowledge of business, you are probably aware that there is no higher power that can influence or control the holder of a first mortgage. I fear so, said the Reverend Edward very sadly. Do you not think, perhaps, that some of the shortcoming lies with yourself? continued Mr. Furlong. Is it not possible that as a preacher you fail somewhat? Do not, as it were, deal sufficiently with the fundamental things as others do? You leave untouched the truly vital issues, such things as the creation, death, and, if I may refer to it, the life beyond the grave, as a result of which the Reverend Edward preached a series of special sermons on the creation, for which he made a special and arduous preparation in the library of Plutoria University. He said that it had taken a million, possibly a hundred million years of quite difficult work to accomplish, and that though, when we looked at it, all was darkness still we could not be far astray if we accepted and held fast to the teachings of sir charles lyle the book of genesis he said was not to be taken as meaning a day when it said a day but rather something other than a mere day and the word light meant not exactly light but possibly some sort of phosphorescence and that the use of the word darkness was to be understood not as meaning darkness but to be taken as simply indicating obscurity. And when he had quite finished, the congregation declared the whole sermon to be mere milk and water. It insulted their intelligence, they said. After which, a week later, the Reverend Dr. Dumfarthing took up the same subject and with the aid of seven plain texts pulverized the rector into fragments. One notable result of the controversy was that Juliana Furlong refused henceforth to attend her brother's church and sat even at morning service under the minister of St. Osoph's. The sermon was, I fear, a mistake, said Mr. Furlong, Sr. Perhaps you had better not dwell too much on such topics. We must look for aid in another direction. In fact, Edward, I may mention to you in confidence that certain of your trustees are already devising ways and means that may help us out of our dilemma. Indeed, although the Reverend Edward did not know it, a certain idea or plan was already germinating in the minds of the most influential supporters of St. Asaph's. Such was the situation of the rival churches of St. Asaph and St. Osoph as the autumn slowly faded into winter, during which time the elm trees on Plutoria Avenue shivered and dropped their leaves, and the chauffeurs of the motors first turned blue in their faces, and then, when the great snows came, were suddenly converted into liveried coachmen with tall bearskins and whiskers like Russian horse guards, changing back again to blue-nosed chauffeurs at the very moment of a thaw. 
During this time also, the congregation of the Reverend Fairforth Furlong was diminishing month by month, and that of the Reverend Uttermas Dumfarthing was so numerous that they filled up the aisles at the back of the church. Here the worshippers stood and froze, for the minister had abandoned the use of steam heat in St. Osoph's on the ground that he could find no warrant for it. During the same period, other momentous things were happening, such as that Juliana Furlong was reading, under the immediate guidance of Dr. Dumfarthing, The History of the Progress of Disruption in the Churches of Scotland, in ten volumes, such also as that Catherine Dumfarthing was wearing a green and gold winter suit with Russian furs and a Balkan hat and a Circassian feather, which cut a wide swath of destruction among the young men on Plutoria Avenue every afternoon as she passed. Moreover, by the strangest of coincidences, she scarcely ever seemed to come along the snow-covered avenue without meeting the Reverend Edward, a fact which elicited new exclamations of surprise from them both every day. And by an equally strange coincidence, they generally seemed, although coming in different directions, to be bound for the same place, towards which they wandered together with such slow steps and in such oblivion of the passers-by that even the children on the avenue knew by instinct whither they were wandering. It was noted also that the broken figure of Dr. McTeague had reappeared upon the street, leaning heavily upon a stick, and greeting those he met with such a meek and willing affability, as if in apology for his stroke of paralysis, that all who talked with him agreed that McTeague's mind was a wreck. He stood and spoke to me about the children for at least a quarter of an hour, related one of his former parishioners, asking after them by name, and whether they were going to school yet, and a lot of questions like that. He never used to speak of such things. Poor old McTeague. I'm afraid he is getting soft in the head. I know, said the person addressed. His mind is no good. He stopped me the other day to say how sorry he was to hear about my brother's illness. I could see from the way he spoke that his brain is getting feeble. He's losing his grip. He was speaking of how kind people had been to him after his accident, and there were tears in his eyes. I think he's getting batty. Nor were even these things the most momentous happenings of the period, for as winter slowly changed to early spring, it became known that something of great portent was under way. It was rumored that the trustees of St. Asaph's Church were putting their heads together. This was striking news. The last time that the head of Mr. Lucullus Feisch, for example, had been placed side by side with that of Mr. Newberry, there had resulted a merger of four soda water companies, bringing what was called industrial peace over an area as big as Texas and raising the price of soda by three peaceful cents per bottle. And the last time that Mr. Furlong Sr. said had been laid side by side with those of Mr. Rasoulier Brown and Mr. Skinyer, they had practically saved the country from the horrors of a coal famine by the simple process of raising the price of nut coal 75 cents a ton and thus guaranteeing its abundance. Naturally, therefore, when it became known that such redoubtable heads as those of the trustees and the underlying mortgagees of St. Asaph's were being put together, it was fully expected that some important development would follow. It was not accurately known from which of the assembled heads first preceded the great idea which was presently to solve the difficulties of the church. It may well have come from that of Mr. Lucullus Feisch, certainly a head which had brought peace out of civil war in the hardware business by amalgamating ten rival stores and had saved the very lives of five hundred employees by reducing their wages fourteen per cent was capable of it at any rate it was mr feisch who first gave the idea a definite utterance 
It's the only thing, Furlong, he said, across the lunch table at the mausoleum club. It's the one solution. The two churches can't live under the present conditions of competition. We have here practically the same situation as we had with two rum distilleries. The output is too large for the demand. One or both of the two concerns must go under. It's their turn just now, but these fellows are businessmen enough to know that it may be ours tomorrow. We'll offer them a business solution. We'll propose a merger. I've been thinking of it, said Mr. Furlong Sr. I suppose it's feasible? Feasible, exclaimed Mr. Fyshe. Why, look at what's being done every day everywhere from the Standard Oil Company downwards. You would hardly, I think, said Mr. Furlong with a quiet smile, compare the Standard Oil Company to a church. Well, no, I suppose not, said Mr. Fyshe. And he too smiled. In fact, he almost laughed. The notion was too ridiculous. One could hardly compare a mere church to a thing of the magnitude and importance of the Standard Oil Company. But on a lesser scale, continued Mr. Fyshe, it's the same sort of thing. As for the difficulties of it, I needn't remind you of the much greater difficulties we had to grapple with in the rum merger. There, you remember, a number of the women held out as a matter of principle. It was not mere business with them. Church union is different. In fact, it is one of the ideas of the day, and everyone admits that what is needed is the application of the ordinary business principles of harmonious combination with a proper um, restriction of output and general economy of operation. Very good, said Mr. Furlong. I'm sure if you're willing to try, the rest of us are. All right, said Mr. Fiche. I thought of setting Skinyer of Skinyer and Beatum to work on the form of the organization. As you know, he is not only a deeply religious man, but he has already handled the ten-pot combination and the United Hardware and the associated tanneries. He ought to find this quite simple. Within a day or two, Mr. Skinyer had already commenced his labors. I must first, he said, get an accurate idea of the existing legal organization of the two churches, for which purpose he approached the rector of St. Asaph's. I just want to ask you, Mr. Furlong, said the lawyer, a question or two as to the exact constitution, the form, so to speak, of your church. What is it? Is it a single corporate body? I suppose, said the rector thoughtfully, one would define it as an indivisible spiritual unit manifesting itself on earth. Quite so, interrupted Mr. Skinyer, but I don't mean what it is in the religious sense. I mean in the real sense. I fail to understand said Mr. Furlong. Let me put it very clearly, said the lawyer. Where does it get its authority? From above, said the rector reverently. Precisely, said Mr. Skinyer, no doubt. But I mean its authority in the exact sense of the term. It was enjoined on St. Peter, began the rector, but Mr. Skinyer interrupted him. That I am aware of, he said. But what I mean is, where does your church get its power, for example, to hold property, to collect debts, to use distraint against the property of others, to foreclose its mortgages, and to cause judgment to be executed against those who fail to pay their debts to it. You will say at once that it has these powers direct from heaven. No doubt that is true, and no religious person would deny it. But we lawyers are compelled to take a narrower, a less elevating point of view. Are these powers conferred on you by the state legislature or by some higher authority? Oh, by a higher authority, I hope, said the rector very fervently. 
whereupon Mr. Skinyer left him without further questioning, the rector's brain being evidently unfit for the subject of corporation law. On the other hand, he got satisfaction from the Reverend Dr. Dumfarthing at once. The Church of St. Osoph, said the minister, is a perpetual trust, holding property as such under a general law of the state, and able as such to be made the object of suit or distraint. I speak with some assurance, as I had occasion to inquire into the matter at the time when I was looking for guidance in regard to the call I had received to come here. It's quite a simple matter, Mr. Skinyer, presently reported to Mr. Fyshe. One of the churches is a perpetual trust, the other practically a state corporation. Each has full control over its property, provided nothing is done by either to infringe the purity of its doctrine. Just what does that mean? asked Mr. Fyshe. It must maintain its doctrine absolutely pure. Otherwise, if certain of its trustees remain pure and the rest do not, those who stay pure are entitled to take the whole of the property. This, I believe, happens every day in Scotland, where, of course, there is great eagerness to remain pure in doctrine. And what do you define as pure doctrine? asked Mr. Fyshe. If the trustees are in dispute, said Mr. Skinyer, the courts decide. But any doctrine is held to be a pure doctrine if all the trustees regard it as a pure doctrine. I see, said Mr. Fyshe thoughtfully. It's the same thing as what we called permissible policy on the part of the directors in the ten-pot combination. Exactly, assented Mr. Skinyer. And it means that for the merger we need nothing, we state it very frankly, except general consent. The preliminary stages of the making of the merger followed along familiar business lines. The trustees of St. Asaph's went through the process known as approaching the trustees of St. Osoph's. First of all, for example, Mr. Lucullus Feisch invited Mr. Asmodeus Boulder of St. Osoph's to lunch with him at the Mausoleum Club. The cost of the lunch, as is usual in such cases, was charged to the general expense account of the church. Of course, nothing whatever was said during the lunch about the churches or their finances or anything concerning them. Such discussion would have been a gross business impropriety. A few days later, the two brothers Overend dined with Mr. Furlong Sr., the dinner being charged directly to the contingencies account of St. Asaph's, after which Mr. Skinyer and his partner, Mr. Beatum, went to the spring races together on the profit and loss account of St. Osoph's and Philippa Overend and Catherine Dumfarthing were taken, by the unforeseen disbursements account, to the grand opera, followed by a midnight supper. All of these things constituted what was called the promotion of the merger, and were almost exactly identical with the successive stages of the making of the amalgamated distilleries and the associated ten-pot corporation, which was considered a most hopeful sign. Do you think they'll go into it? asked Mr. Newberry of Mr. Furlong Sr. anxiously. After all, what inducement have they? Every inducement, said Mr. Furlong. All said and done, they've only one large asset, Dr. Dumfarthing. We're really offering to buy up Dr. Dumfarthing by pooling our assets with theirs. And what does Dr. Dumfarthing himself say to it? Ah, there I am not so sure, said Mr. Furlong. That may be a difficulty. So far there hasn't been a word from him, and his trustees are absolutely silent about his views. However, we shall soon know all about it. Skinyer is asking us all to come together one evening next week to draw up the articles of agreement. Has he got the financial basis arranged then? I believe so, said Mr. Furlong. His idea is to form a new corporation to be known as the United Church Limited, or by some similar name. 
all the present mortgagees will be converted into unified bondholders the pew rents will be capitalized into preferred stock and the common stock drawing its dividend from the offertory will be distributed among all members in standing skinyer says that it is really an ideal form of church union one that he thinks is likely to be widely adopted it has the advantage of removing all questions of religion which he says are practically the only remaining obstacle to a union of all the churches in fact it puts the churches once and for all on a business basis but what about the question of doctrine of belief asked mr newberry skinyer says he can settle it answered mr furlong about a week after the above conversation the united trustees of st asaph's and st osoph's were gathered about a huge egg-shaped table in the boardroom of the mausoleum club they were seated in intermingled fashion after the precedent of the recent tin-pot amalgamation and were smoking huge black cigars specially kept by the club for the promotion of companies and chargeable to expenses of organization at fifty cents a cigar there was an air of deep peace brooding over the assembly as among men who have accomplished a difficult and meritorious task well then said mr skinyer who was in the chair with a pile of documents in front of him i think that our general basis of financial union may be viewed as settled a murmur of assent went round the meeting the terms are set forth in the memorandum before us which you have already signed only one other point a minor one remains to be considered i refer to the doctrines or the religious belief of the new amalgamation is it necessary to go into that asked mr boulder not entirely perhaps said mr skinyer still there have been as you all know certain points i won't say of disagreement but let us say of friendly argument between the members of the different churches such things for example here he consulted his papers as the theory of the creation the salvation of the soul and so forth have been mentioned in this connection i have a memorandum of them here though the points escape me for the moment these you may say are not matters of first importance especially as compared with the intricate financial questions which we have already settled in a satisfactory manner still i think it might be well if i were permitted with your unanimous approval to jot down a memorandum or two to be afterwards embodied in our articles there was a general murmur of approval very good said mr skinyer settling himself back in his chair now first in regard to the creation here he looked all round the meeting in a way to command attention is it your wish that we should leave that merely to a gentleman's agreement or do you want an explicit clause i think it might be well said mr dick overend to leave no doubt about the theory of the creation good said mr skinyer i am going to put it down then something after this fashion on and after let us say august first proximo the process of the creation shall be held and is hereby held to be such and such only as is acceptable to a majority of the holders of common and preferred stock voting pro rata is that agreed carried cried several at once carried repeated mr skinyer now let us pass on here he consulted his notes to item two eternal punishment i have made a memorandum as follows should any doubts arise on or after august first proximo as to the existence of eternal punishment they shall be settled absolutely and finally by a pro rata vote of all the holders of common and preferred stock 
Is that agreed? One moment, said Mr. Fyshe. Do you think that quite fair to the bondholders? After all, as the virtual holders of the property, they are the persons most interested. I should like to amend your clause and make it read, I am not phrasing it exactly, but merely giving the sense of it, that eternal punishment should be reserved for the mortgagees and bondholders. At this there was an outbreak of mingled approval and dissent, several persons speaking at once. In the opinion of some of the stockholders of the company, especially the preferred stockholders had as good a right to eternal punishment as the bondholders. Presently Mr. Skinyer, who had been busily writing notes, held up his hand for silence. Gentlemen, he said, will you accept this as a compromise? We will keep the original clause, but merely add to it the words, but no form of eternal punishment shall be declared valid if displeasing to a three-fifths majority of the holders of bonds. Carried, carried, cried everybody. To which I think we need only add, said Mr. Skinyer, a clause to the effect that all other points of doctrine, belief, or religious principle may be freely altered, amended, reversed, or entirely abolished at any general annual meeting. There was a renewed chorus of carried, carried, and the trustees rose from the table shaking hands with one another and lighting fresh cigars as they passed out of the club into the night air. The only thing I don't understand, said Mr. Newberry to Dr. Boomer, as they went out from the club arm in arm, for they might now walk in that fashion with the same propriety as two of the principals in a distillery merger. The only thing that I don't understand is why the Reverend Mr. Dumfarthing should be willing to consent to the amalgamation. Do you really not know, said Dr. Boomer? No. You have heard nothing? Not a word, said Mr. Newberry. Ah, rejoined the president, I see that our men have kept it very quiet, naturally so in view of the circumstances. The truth is that the Reverend Mr. Dumfarthing is leaving us. Leaving, say no so, exclaimed Mr. Newberry in utter astonishment. To our great regret, he has had a call, a most inviting field of work, he says, a splendid opportunity. They offered him 10,100. We were only giving him 10,000 here, though of course that feature of the situation would not weigh at all with a man like Dumfarthing. Oh no, of course not, said Mr. Newberry. As soon as we heard of the call, we offered him 10,300. Not that that would make any difference to a man of his character. Indeed, Dumfarthing was still waiting and looking for guidance when they offered him 11,000. We couldn't meet it. It was beyond us, though we had the consolation of knowing that with such a man as Dumfarthing, the money made no difference. And he has accepted the call? Yes, he accepted it today. He sent word to Mr. Dick Overend, our chairman, that he would remain in his manse looking for light until 2.30, after which, if we had not communicated with him by that hour, he would cease to look for it. Dear me, said Mr. Newberry in deep reflection, so that when your trustees came to the meeting... Exactly, said Dr. Boomer, and something like a smile passed across his features for a moment. Dr. Dumfarthing had already sent away his telegram of acceptance. Why then, said Mr. Newberry, at the time of our discussion tonight, you were in the position of having no minister. Not at all. We had already appointed a successor. A successor? Certainly. It will be in tomorrow morning's papers. The fact is that we decided to ask Dr. McTeague to resume his charge. Dr. McTeague, repeated Mr. Newberry in amazement, 
but surely his mind is understood to be oh not at all interrupted dr boomer his mind appears if anything to be clearer and stronger than ever dr slider tells us that paralysis of the brain very frequently has this effect it soothes the brain clears it as it were so that very often intellectual problems which occasioned the greatest perplexity before present no difficulty whatever afterwards dr mcteague i believe finds no trouble now in reconciling st paul's dialectic with hegel as he used to he says that so far as he can see they both mean the same thing well well said mr newberry and will dr mcteague also resume his philosophical lectures at the university we think it wiser not said the president while we feel that dr mcteague's mind is in admirable condition for clerical work we fear that professorial duties might strain it in order to get the full value of his remarkable intelligence we propose to elect him to the governing body of the university there his brain will be safe from any shock as a professor there would always be the fear that one of his students might raise a question in his class this of course is not a difficulty that arises in the pulpit or among the governors of the university of course not said mr newberry thus was constituted the famous union or merger of the churches of st asaph and st osoph viewed by many of those who made it as the beginning of a new era in the history of the modern church there is no doubt that it has been in every way an eminent success rivalry competition and controversies over points of dogma have become unknown on plutoria avenue the parishioners of the two churches may now attend either of them just as they like as the trustees are fond of explaining it doesn't make the slightest difference the entire receipts of the churches being now pooled are divided without reference to individual attendance at each half-year there is issued a printed statement which is addressed to the shareholders of the united churches limited and is hardly to be distinguished in style or material from the annual and semi-annual reports of the tin pot amalgamation and the united hardware and other quasi-religious bodies of the sort your directors the last of these documents states are happy to inform you that in spite of the prevailing industrial depression the gross receipts of the corporation have shown such an increase as to justify the distribution of a stock dividend of special offertory stock cumulative which will be offered at par to all holders of common or preferred shares you will also be gratified to learn that the directors have voted unanimously in favor of a special presentation to the reverend uttermust dumfarthing on the occasion of his approaching marriage it was earnestly debated whether this gift should take the form as at first suggested of a cash presentation or as afterwards suggested of a written testimonial in the form of an address the latter course was finally adopted as being more fitting to the circumstances and the address has accordingly been prepared setting forth to the rev dr dumfarthing in old english lettering and wording the opinion which is held of him by his former parishioners the approaching marriage referred of course to dr dumfarthing's betrothal to juliana furlong it was not known that he had ever exactly proposed to her but it was understood that before giving up his charge he drew her attention in very severe terms to the fact that as his daughter was now leaving him he must either have someone else to look after his manse or else be compelled to incur the expense of a paid housekeeper this latter alternative he said was not one that he cared to contemplate he also reminded her that she was now at a time of life when she could hardly expect to pick and choose and that her spiritual condition was one of at least great uncertainty these combined statements are held under the law of scotland at any rate 
to be equivalent to an offer of marriage. Catherine Dumferthing did not join her father in his new manse. She first remained behind him as the guest of Philippa Overin for a few weeks while she was occupied in packing up her things. After that, she stayed for another two or three weeks to unpack them. This had been rendered necessary by a conversation held with the Reverend Edward Fairforth Furlong in a shaded corner of the Overin's garden, after which in due course of time Catherine and Edward were married, the ceremony being performed by the Reverend Dr. McTeague whose eyes filled with philosophical tears as he gave them his blessing. So the two churches of St. Asaph and St. Oso stand side by side, united and at peace. Their bells call softly back and forward to one another on Sunday mornings, and such is the harmony between them that even the Episcopal rooks in the elm trees of St. Asaph's and the Presbyterian crows in the spruce trees of St. Oso's are known to exchange perches on alternate Sundays. End of chapter 7, part 2. Recording by Patty Cunningham.